Submitted. We'll hear argument next to number 99409, the Hartford Underwriters Insurance Company versus the Union Planners Bank. Mr. Brunstead. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. In the century preceding the enactment of the Bankruptcy Code in 1978, this Court and other Federal Courts recognize and enforce the rule that an unpaid administrative claimant in a bankruptcy case can come to Court and have his or her claim paid if the expense benefited the secured party. The Federal Courts also recognize the rule that a trustee who pays a claim may come and seek to charge the secured uh, party's collateral uh, if there was a benefit to the secured party. In enacting Section 506C of the Bankruptcy Code, Congress recognized the right of the trustee, and the issue before the Court today is whether Congress's recognition of the right of the trustee was therefore intended to abrogate the other pre-code practice, which is that the administrative claimant could come to court and have the claim paid. So you're simply arguing that if the, if the code says nothing, the pre-code practice applies, notwithstanding something like 506C? Yes, Your Honor. Um, as the Court stated uh, two years ago in the Cohen case cited in our brief at uh, 523 U.S. at 221, we will not read the bankruptcy code to erode past bankruptcy practice absent a clear indication that Congress intended such a departure. Well, here Congress said the trustee. That's correct, Your Honor. And it doesn't talk about the creditor. So maybe that's a change. I mean, it's pretty clear language. Yes, it is, Your Honor. But I think that the part that Congress recognized was the tip of the iceberg. As this Court made clear in the Wilson case, which we cite in our brief, uh, the, the rule which this Court recognized was that the unpaid administrative claimant could come forward and have the claim paid. Now, we know under the Bankruptcy Code that Congress will codify some of the equitable doctrines that preceded its enactment, and yet this Court has recognized other equitable I mean, this just looks uh, like pretty clear language. Did, did your client ask the trustee to uh, take action? Actually, Your Honor, yes, my client did. And yeah. the trustee's position was that the trustee had no interest in this case and would not pursue it. Could you have asked the judge uh, to instruct the trustee to exercise his discretion to collect the — to impose the surcharge? Uh, yes, we could have asked the, 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 the bankruptcy court to do that, but we think that the, it would have been futile because the trustee had no funds whatsoever to engage in litigation with so the So that it would party. have been abuse, an abuse of discretion for the trustee to go ahead and seek the sur- surcharge? It would, uh, it would have been, Your Honor, completely futile. Plus, I think Your Honor would have to uh, recognize in this case that the trustee having no interest in recovery, because the trustee had not paid the claim in the first place, um, one could argue that the trustee having no interest and no incentive and no ability, it simply could not have happened. But did the trustee, in your view, in this case, have the discretion either to seek the church surcharge or not to seek Seek the church surcharge? Well, if the trustee had wanted to do so for free, certainly the trustee could have pursued the claim. But do you think that if you were the counsel for the trustee, you would have told the trustee that he has discretion not to pursue the surcharge? Yes, Your Honor, I would, because the state so of Now law- we're in the position where the code says that it's uh, within the trustee's discretion not to pursue the surcharge, and yet the creditor can force it? That seems a little odd to me. Well, Your Honor, our position is not that the creditor can force the trustee to do it. Our position is that the creditor can pursue the claim. It still seems odd to me. If the oh. trustee has the discretion not to do so for the creditor to force it, it seems to me um, to be, in effect, controlling the discretion of the trustee. I think perhaps, Your Honor, um, the, the question here is not whether the trustee has discretion. It would be whether the trustee has the ability. In this case, the trustee having no funds to litigate with the secured party simply could not uh, if, pursue if the you claim. Had had, if you had had a prior arrangement with the trustee, I don't know whether you did or not, uh, could an action be brought in state court uh, on the basis of, of representations? We think, Your Honor, that the remedy here is a remedy under the uh, bankruptcy law. Yeah, I, I didn't. That's not the question I asked you. I, I, th- I thought maybe the Eighth Circuit had had reserved the question of whether there was some right you had to go in, into federal court on diversity or state law. 
I think, Your Honor, that the, the Eighth Circuit, the en banc decision, was merely saying that the only question here is whether there is a question well, What did the panel opinion say? The panel opinion, Your Honor, said that we had the right under Section 506C. There was no mention of was, an alternative and right. Had you brought any, any claims in, in the district court uh, or uh, any other court? No, Your Honor, we had not. This is the, this is the exclusive uh, means of, of recovery which we are pursuing. I'm, I'm curious about a prior question about what 506C covers. Yes, sir. Uh, the text of 506C says the trustee may recover from property securing an allowed secured claim the reasonable necessary costs and expenses of preserving or disposing of such property. And I think we're dealing here with workman's comp yes, uh, premiums that were incurred after the original uh, Chapter 11 proceeding was begun Correct. in an attempt to keep the business going. It didn't have anything to do with a cost and expense of preserving of the, the real property, did it? It did, Your Honor. In this case, the assets in question were operating businesses, gas stations, restaurants. And in order to operate those businesses, the debtor had to have workers' comp insurance or, or it could not operate at all. So but for the provision of the insurance, there would have been no operation. Yeah, but if they operate as a loss, that's not much of a benefit to the secured creditor. That's the whole problem is these people have been operating. Well, Your Honor, I think that the difference is that between liquidation value and going concern value. Well, gas well put it this way. I'm not sure. I, I mean, if, if, if your client had been hired to go paint the building or to repair the plumbing, I can understand how it would fit under 506C, but to incur an expense for paying these premiums for workman's comp to run the business as opposed to actually enhancing the real property or the building, I'm not sure I see how it fits under 506 at all well, instead of 503A. Well, Your Honor, you never get to 506 unless you go through 503. 503 allows the administrative expense and creates a class of administrative expense claimants. Probably your client is within that general category. There is no dispute, Your Honor, that our claim was allowed as a proper administrative expense. Go now against the real property, because that's the only thing there is, I guess. Correct. 506C articulates a priority for certain kinds. But why doesn't it, isn't it limited to something that actually enhances the property as opposed to the broader 503 claim? Your Honor, in this case, it's undisputed that our claim provided a benefit to the secured party. And the reason that it did was because the value which the bank realized from the sale of these businesses as a going concern was actually much greater than the value that they would have received if the gas station had shut down. Picture the, the, the storage tanks under a gas station, which is not operating or generating revenue. Typically, those operations sell for very little money. If, however, you have an operating uh, store, and these, some of these stores are, in fact, still operating, but with different owners, um, their value is much more. So the bank got the benefit of the, the, the difference in value because the debtor was able to operate in, in a going concern value, and those values were preserved. That is, of course, one of the purposes of Chapter 11. Mr. Who, President, who, I have — Who can speak uh, to, to engage uh, a client such as yours to continue? Is it the trustee? Do you have to have an arrangement with the trustee? Well, I think Your Honor should understand that the trustee and creditors are adversaries, and that it would not be — it would be unseemly, in the least, for a creditor — who is adversary to a trustee, to have to hire the adversary to pursue the creditor's claim. Yes, but in, in the first place, af- after bankruptcy, uh, who authorizes your client to continue paying for workman's compensation? Oh, I see. Um, well, in this case, Your Honor, our client did not even know of the bankruptcy. The debtor concealed that fact from us. So we continued to provide the services without, without any authorization the from the trustee. Well, it was authorized, Your Honor, but in the Chapter 11 context, it doesn't quite work that way. What happens is that when the debtor, um, who is in possession of all of the estate, uh, the case is filed, the debtor continues to operate as it had. Section 1108 of the Bankruptcy Code provides for the continued operation of the businesses. And the ordinary expenses which the debtor would incur in operating the businesses continue to be paid. Now, but is the debtor authorized to incur expenses which will be ultimately classified as administrative expenses? Yes, Your Honor. Um, and that, that uh, in expenses that are incurred in the ordinary course, 
the debtor is authorized by statute to continue to incur those expenses. And in this case, what we have, Your Honor, is an involuntary creditor. We have the insurance company who provided insurance because the debtor was, could not get it in the market and it was an assignment through the assigned risk pool. So as an involuntary creditor, Hartford had to continue to provide the insurance. Even, it, even when the premiums well, well, were not paid? Once the premiums were not paid, uh, the Hartford then went and issued a default notice to the debtor. No, and no, my, my, my question is yes, this. Let's assume the current premium has not been paid. Yes, Your Honor. Does Hartford, under Missouri law, have the requirement to continue to provide the coverage? For a period of time, yes, because How actually there is a 30-day notice period before the pro- policy can be canceled. For just 30 days? That's what the contract provides. Different but, states have But you seek for some six or seven months, am I right? Yes, Your Honor. Um, but what happened during that period of time was that initially a pr- part of the premium was paid when the application for the insurance was submitted. So that was covered for a period of time. The way these policies work, I believe it was uh, over $25,000. Could not the insurer have said in a situation like this, the debtor is in Chapter 11, I'm not going to be at risk, put up the whole thing in front? If we had known about the Chapter 11, uh, perhaps we could have done that, but we did not know, Your Honor. As soon as you found out about it, couldn't you say, at this point we stop until you pay the premium in advance? We did not find out until after the policy was, had terminated, Your Honor. How does that relate to your argument that, uh, that you were required to provide insurance anyway because this individual or the, the, the company would have been within the assigned risk pool? Your Honor, what happened was that they tendered their application with part of the premium, and then the, a period of time went by. Premiums are calculated on an audit basis, meaning the debtor has to submit their payroll reports to the insurer. Then the insurer calculates the premiums based upon the number of, of persons who are employed times a certain rate. The debtor, in this case, neglected to send those monthly reports, so Hartford sent an auditor in. The auditor conducted the audit, went back to Hartford, Hartford calculated the premium, and then sent a demand to the debtor. The debtor paid part of the premium. Now, all of this took a lot of time to happen. After the debtor paid a part of the premium, the second installment, in addition to the one that was was with the initial application, and it was not enough to carry through the term. But by the time the Hartford went and said, you haven't paid the full amount, we were 30 days away from the termination of the policy, so it was too late to cancel. So all, all you're saying is we had to start insuring when we could stop insuring was, in fact, a complex function of the audit. Correct, Your Honor. Okay. Could, could I ask this about Section 506, which is on page 2 of your brief? Uh, yes, it sir. says the trustee may recover uh, necessary costs and expenses of preserving or disposing. Now, I assume that, that he can't recover them until they've been expended. That's correct, Your Honor. Well, when the trustee, the that, trustee, that's a reasonable reading of it. Correct, Your Honor. Isn't it also a reasonable reading of it that, that he can't recover them unless he has expended them? I mean, I, I'm correct, sub- Your Honor. When the trustee, well, but that, that's not the position you're taking. You're, you, 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 in response to other questions here, you have assumed that the trustee could sue to recover money that he didn't expend, but that you expended. I think that the best reading of the statute, Your Honor, on its plain meaning is that the trustee, when the trustee expends, then the trustee recovers. Right. But under prior practice, that was not necessarily the rule. Under prior practice, trustees could recover whether they expended or not, and individual claimants could recover whether they expended or not. And the problem that the Court faces — As long as somebody else had expended. I mean, somebody has to have expended. You, you ex- Somebody has to be out some dollars before they can recover. And it has to be an administrative expense, allowable administrative expense, but before you, you get to 506. You agree that the that — the, that the Straight, most straightforward reading of the statute is that the trustee can recover any money that he's expended. Correct. Securing. That's correct, Your Honor. And, but that doesn't, of course, tell us what to do when the trustee has not expended and you the individual's claimant is out. Mr. Brownlee, that the, the, the standard situation in which 506 applies is where the trustee has paid out cash. Right. Where the trustee and has paid out cash. Then, he's, then he gets back that cash from the from the security, from the sale of the secured property. Correct, Your Honor. And that has always been the uniform rule in, in the federal courts, including as articulated by this court. So how often has 506 applied to credit transactions? It applies in almost every single case, Your Honor, in one way or another, where there has, is a secured party. The problem that we face, Your Honor, is that in some cases... So I mean, practically, you've just said the standard instance in which 506 is used is the trustee pays out dollars, and then the property is sold, and he gets those dollars back from the top of the, of the price. Correct. 
But that presupposes, Your Honor, that the trustee paid the expense first, and that presupposes the trustee had funds, unencumbered funds, to pay All the I'm suggesting first. is that that is the, the core situation to which 506 applies. It is That's the, what you agreed with me. It is the logical um, situation, the paradigm, which seem, Congress seemed to have had in mind. And now what we must do is fill in the gap for the part that Congress didn't seem to have in mind. And so the question becomes, do we follow the pre-code practice to fill the gap? Well, that's, you know, you keep talking about pre-code practice, and I looked at your cases, and there isn't all that pre-code practice. I mean, there's the one decision that you're relying on from this court before there was any bankruptcy legislation, and then another one that's an admiralty case. The Ponzan case was an admiralty case. That's correct, Your Honor. That doesn't show a very solid pre-code practice. Well, Your Honor, the, the case which you rely on from this Court, the Wilson case, I think quite clearly addressed the specific problem and provided the specific solution that we're seeking. In the lower court decisions, as, they, as the bankruptcy laws evolved up to the point of the bankruptcy code, those courts relied on Wilson for the proposition uh, that the administrative claimant has the right uh, to come to the court and have its claim paid when, the, when it, it has not been paid. And uh, one of the cases um, that, that, that we cite in our brief is um, a case involving uh, — bear with me for one minute, Your Honor. It is the uh, Louisville case, Louisville Storage Company case, 21 F. Sup. at 897, where the Court, citing Wilson, said, quote, it has always been the rule inherent in general principles of equity that the lien holder must bear the expense of bankruptcy administration, which is solely for his benefit, or to which he consents, or to which he causes. And there and in those other cases, relying on Wilson, the courts would allow, on occasion, the unpaid administrative claimant to come forward and have the claim paid. So Wilson is the lodestar, in a sense, and yeah, the lower Relying on one rather old Supreme Court decision and some lower court decisions following it up. I, I'm just suggesting that that is not a very strong uh, peg for claiming this understood pre-code practice. Well, Your Honor, it was uniform. There were no opinions to the contrary. And the, 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 this practice, I would submit, Your Honor, is more established than the pre-code practice which this Court was willing to accept at Mid-Atlantic for the proposition that a trustee's power to abandon carries with it the corollary that the trustee cannot abandon uh, in violation of certain health and safety requirements under applicable state law. Well, isn't it possible that Congress might have wanted to change this, figuring that the, the, what you describe as pre-code practice would attract a certain amount of leeches who wanted to get at the, at the secured property? <laughs> well, Your Honor, um, the rule, I think, uh, is one which, which, which initially five courts of appeals and the Eighth Circuit changed its mind, had adopted, and the courts had no ability administering. I don't think there's any evidence, Your Honor, that Congress intended to change the practice. In fact, the only evidence in the legislative history is that Congress intended to maintain the status quo. So there's no — there being no evidence of an intent to change, the presumption, I think, is that, and properly so, given the nature of what we're talking about, the bankruptcy laws, that the pre-code practice endures. If, if the trustee chose to seek these funds to surcharge the property, um, and either by an accounting entry or by the actual receipt of cash, received uh, $25,000. Would that be paid 100 percent to you, or could the trustee say, well, now I have my own administrative expenses, too, and, other, and there are other administrative expenses? How, how does that work? If the trustee has paid the claim from unencumbered funds of the estate, and the trustee then seeks to recover it from the secured party's collateral, and the trustee is basically replenishing the estate, and then the funds would be distributed. But in that situation, of course, the administrative claimant is paid in full. No, but in my, my hypothetical, he, he's not quite sure, and so he, he goes to court seeking authority to pay. Uh, he gets it. Uh, does that go just to you, or does it go to other administrative claimants as well? It would go to us if we were the only Section 506. No, there are, there are other ones. Well, those claimants' claims are not entitled to the priority that Section 506C provides. If those claims did not provide a benefit to the security They say they did. Oh, if they did, and they were properly also 506C claimants. They, they, they claim that, but he, he just seeks authority to recover the money for, for you. And then it's there in the pot. Doesn't everybody get to share it? If, it, if those other claimants' claims were determined ultimately by the court to be entitled to 506C, 
we would share with other 506C claimants. Do you have to do that under your uh, theory of the case where you yourself can sue? Yes. So once you get a surcharge, you have to share it with everybody else? I think it's important to understand, Your Honor, that in the bankruptcy case, the timing of when claims are presented is not what's important. At the end of the case, after all claims have been cut off by a bar date and then determined, those is, that is when the distributions can be made. I know. Well, you help me with my question. What happens if you prevail and you succeed in a surcharge? Do you have to share with other administrative claimants who, who, have, who have made a claim? If they have 506C rights, yes. Now, are there, are there priorities within the 506C administrative claimants? No. All 506C claimants are equal. Including those pre-conversion and post-conversion? No. 506C only applies, Your Honor, to ah. post-petition. Okay. What happens pre-petition? Uh, if a uh, if a if a uh, debtor uh, has a huge claim against, say, General Motors that requires a lawsuit, let's say millions of dollars, and the trustee, thinking it isn't that great a claim, won't bring the lawsuit, yes. but the creditor, who's a big creditor, thinks yes. I'd certainly like this money in the estate. Yes. I want him to bring the lawsuit. Uh, what happens? Can the creditor sue General Motors directly? Your Honor, we believe that the court answered that question in Meyer versus Fleming, yeah, cited in our brief. And the answer is that, of course, the lawsuit should not be allowed to lapse. The creditor can come and bring the cause. So of the creditor can bring his own lawsuit in that case for the benefit of the estate because the trustee wouldn't. Correct, Your Honor. And you say that's really the same principle here. Correct, Your Honor. And, but, and I what think could Hartford have done here to protect itself? I mean, what, what's conceivably? out there to protect Hartford. Well, is, is no notice required to be given to people post-petition in a Chapter 11? Notice is required, Your Honor. It should have been done. It was not done in this case to the Hartford. So the Hartford was uh, without notice. But let's assuming that Hartford had notice, mm-hmm. what could Hartford have done? Well, being an involuntary creditor, and having to provide insurance as long as the premium was paid, um, very little. And Hartford's relief is Section 506C. Just like when the United States comes in and, the, and cleans up an environmental site post-petition, and the cleanup of the site benefits the secured party by increasing the value of the collateral, the United States in that situation, um, courts have recognized, can then come to court and say, the trustee has not paid our administrative expense for cleanup because the trustee has no unencumbered funds to do so. And the courts have said, well, you may surcharge the collateral to the extent that it benefited the secured party. Now, if that were not the rule and the trustee had no funds to pay the United States' cleanup cost, then essentially the United States would be subsidizing the recovery of the secured party, who would walk away with the full value of the collateral, having the benefit of the cleanup costs, but not have to pay that cost from the collateral. And this Court's principle, which is art- it's articulated uh, in Burnham versus Bowen, in Wilson, in a whole line of cases, is that that is not the bankruptcy. Was rule. this property ulti- — was the business ultimately sold as a going concern? Yes, Your Honor. During the case, the stores were sold during the course of the Chapter 11 case. In fact, that was planned from the beginning. Um, in our appendix, there is one of the pullouts um, that we have — which uh, shows the budget and what the what the parties were to expend, um, listed at the top, and this is uh, page 175A. Uh, you will see at the top stores to close, and this was this was uh, the exhibit that was attached to the the order on the first uh, day of the bankruptcy, and it shows that there were num- identifies a number of stores to be closed, and in fact a number of the stores were closed and sold as going concerns, and the bank realized the proceeds from those sales. So the bank got the benefit of the going concern. And our simple point is that But a number of them weren't. I mean, the thing eventually ended up in Chapter 7, and and it was liquidated. After the stores were uh, sold pretty All of them? I believe all of them. There may have been one or so. Mr. Brunstad. All of them were, Your Honor. Uh, Yes, all of them were. Mr. Brunstad, in in Mid-Atlantic, which you say is the case that stands for the proposition of uh, bringing or bringing forward uh, pre-code practice, if Congress doesn't say it. We said in, in codifying the judicially developed rule of abandonment, Congress also presumably included the established corollary, et cetera. Yes, sir. Now, what 
rule are you saying that 506C codified that should bring with it your position? 506C codified the tip of the iceberg of well, the larger equity principle. The, the tip of the iceberg really isn't a very sad I mean, certainly you're right. it's certainly Midlantic is much narrower than saying the, the, the statutory is just the tip of the iceberg, that we bring all sorts of other things with it. Well, I think, Your Honor, um, in this case, what should come with 506C is the undisputed established pre-code practice. There is no contrary precedent, uh, contrary to Wilson. Yes, but it's um, Midlantic is talking about they're codifying something, and you can tell from the language of the section that they're codifying. You can't tell from 506C that they're codifying anything as broad as you say, it seems to me. Well, Your Honor, the bankruptcy codifies in Section 553 rights of set-off. It says nothing about rights of recoupment. Yet in bankruptcy, that was an established uh, right, and this Court in Ritter versus Cooper um, said it's well settled that recoupment applies in bankruptcy. So this Court, in construing the bankruptcy laws, has not been shy about incorporating or recognizing yeah. its Yes, but set-off and recoupment seem much closer to one another than 506C and, and what you're talking about. Well, I think, Your Honor, that actually the opposite is true. What we're talking about here is a rule that the administrative claimant can come, which is inextricably intertwined with the right of the trustee. The, the, the general principle is the same. I think it's important to emphasize that bankruptcy proceedings are in REM and that the bankruptcy court, as this court made clear in the Adair case, that it is the responsibility of the court, the bankruptcy court, to see to it that the in REM assets, which are in custodial legis, are, in fact, yeah, distributed but that, properly. That's a general statement that really I don't see. How, how does that aid you in this particular case when you're talking about 506C? Because Adair is the case, Your Honor, which articulated the rule, which we're relying on here, the general rule, that the administrative expenses must be paid out of the secured parties' collateral to the extent of the benefit. And the Court, it would, I think, be, lead to an absurd result to say that if the trustee doesn't come to court, that the bankruptcy court has no authority to allocate the charges properly. And if the bankruptcy court has authority to do so, any party in interest in the case should be able to come to court to say to the court, this is how it must be done. Well, that, that would be um, all the more so if you interpreted 506C as allowing the trustee to recover only those expenses that he has paid. Correct, Your I, I think your, your, your case gets harder if you read 506C to say, that the trustee may also recover on your behalf expenses that you've paid. I don't read it that way, but you apparently do. Well, Your Honor, I think Your Honor's reading is the correct reading. In response to Your Honor's prior question, I think it was my response was that pre-code practice allowed either way. I think Your Honor's reading is the best reading, and that the administrative claimant following pre-code practice can come to court when the trustee has not paid the claim. Under what section? Under what section, Your Honor? Yes. Well, the bank uh, — under pre-code practice, the lower courts often would would invoke this rule as a gloss on the court's power to allow administrative claims. Yeah. But that, that, to me, that is the difficulty with your position. In the cases that, where we've said pre-code practice, you can point to a section and say, yes, this brings — this is, says A, but it also means the corollary to A under prior practice. But you don't have an alternative section to point to. 506C doesn't help you. Well, neither does the doctrine of recoupment, Your Honor, nor the doctrine of earmarking or substantive consolidation. And those are all equitable doctrines which endure. Mr. Brownlee, I'd like — you made a major uh, shift from your brief in response to Justice Scalia's question, and so I'd really like to know what your position is. That is, you made a big thing about 50C. It wasn't the trustee only. It was the trustee and — Carrot Mark, um, your client. But now you say Justice Scalia has the better reading that 506 has nothing to do with this case. So which well, one it, is it? It does, Your Honor, because 506C clearly recognizes that expenses of the kind which we are talking about are chargeable against the secured party's collateral. And the question in an in-rem bankruptcy proceeding where we're simply talking about dividing up assets, who's going to get what? The question is, can a party in interest come to court and say, this expense should be put in this bucket or moved here because the trustee has no incentive or ability to come to court to, to say it should be so? And where the bank, because the bankruptcy court has the power 
under 105, under its general equitable powers, which this Court recognized recently in the energy resources cases, to be quite broad, to allocate — Are you dropping your reliance on 506? No, Your Honor. 506C recognizes recognizes that the expense of the kind which we are talking about here is chargeable. All we are saying is simply the Court should adopt the gloss which the, the, the courts adopted pre-enactment of the Bankruptcy Code, that individual claimants, parties and in interests, unpaid administrative claimants, can come to court and say, the trustee won't act. We get to have this particular expense. Come to court under 506C? Because that's the question presented in your petition for certiorari. The court under 506C, following pre-code practice, could rule and I think it doesn't make any difference, Your Honor, which, whether you rely on 506C directly or on pre-code practice, but I think that you can rely on Section 506C. Well, if you can't, uh, you lose on the question presented. Well, our position, Your Honor, is your that time you has expired. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Uh, we'll hear now from you, Mr. Brownlee. Good morning, Mr. Chief Justice. May it please the Court. I don't know if it would make any difference in the Justice's uh, rulings, but I'd like to my friend and colleague, Mr. Brunstad, misspoke on a couple of questions. Uh, one, I believe, uh, by Justice Kennedy. Uh, I may be wrong about that because I think it was the first question in the argument uh, where Hartford indicated it had asked the trustee to proceed and the trustee had refused. In the blue brief at page 5, note 4, <coughs> it is stated Hartford did not request the trustee to pursue its claim under Section 506C because the law in the Eighth Circuit, as it existed at that time, permitted administrative claimants to pursue such claims on their own behalf, uh, citing the DeBoltman's case, which was overruled by the Eighth Circuit. In fact, not even that is really so. When the Boatman's case was decided, the one that was overruled in this case, uh, the issue was at contest in the Hartford versus Magna case, Magna being the predecessor of my client. So I believe Mr. Brunstad misspoke in response to the answer to that question. Uh, How could Hartford have avoided losing uh, its claim here, do you think, if there was something that was obtained when the business was sold as an ongoing business and assuming that the workman's comp insurance somehow uh, benefited? Justice O'Connor, Hartford's policies were such in this case, if, if you look at the record below, uh, that it did not know that it was insuring a debtor uh, for a period of some 15 months or so. Uh, the one thing Hartford could have done, I believe, although I don't need, intend to tell them how to run their business, in any, and I don't mean this in any way derogatorily or, or a, in a pejorative manner, would be, have been to have some procedures in place so that they would have known, even though the debtor, uh, I have no evidence that the debtor did notify them, bankruptcy is and always has been somewhat creditor in tour. And it is true in this case that there's no evidence that Hartford was actually notified. Uh, there is evidence in this case on the record below that Hartford knew that it had a series of quarterly bills that were going unpaid, and so it couldn't have found out. Had Hartford known earlier, uh, before the case was converted to a seven, and before the case uh, was in a total liquidation mode, Hartford could have come to court. Hartford could have asked to terminate the policy based on nonpayment, at least cut its losses. And also Hartford could have tried to take steps to persuade the bankruptcy court, perhaps while there were still funds in the estate, uh, to allow it then an administrative claim and force the payment of that claim. Bankruptcy is, has a lot to do with timing, uh, especially in a reorganization case that's going downhill. Hartford, in fact, is correct that it did not know until substantially later. If the Justice's question is, how could Hartford have protected itself after the fact, once we got to March of 1993 or whatever the record will show the date was that it learned, Hartford cannot protect itself under 506C, I submit. 506C says the trustee may recover. Well, is, what happens in, in uh, so I don't know that that Meyer case really answers the question, but what happens in the case of a pre-petition, the, the, a pre-petition debtor? The pre-petition debtor has a giant claim against General Motors, a lawsuit, okay. and the trustee doesn't bring the claim. And one of the creditors says, I'd like to bring it. Now, Meyer dealt with the case of the debtor having filed the suit, not a creditor. 
It could be taken as authority for the creditor. <coughs> so what happens? Is it, is it the case that creditors in such circumstances simply go and bring their own lawsuits in the name of the estate instead of the trustee doing it? Well, Justice Breyer, if I could, if I could just observe, first of all, in the Meyer case, <coughs> it's my read of the Meyer case that while the court allowed the principle of the second debtor to proceed with the pre-filed proof of claim in the first bankruptcy, it was clear that any recovery would be on behalf of the estate which is not something Hartford seeks here. Hartford I know, no, but I, seeks I, a non-share. I, 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 what I'm trying to do for my own purposes is to find an analogy, and I know it's a rough analogy, but I'd like to know just for my own purposes what happens, and it must happen often, of when a trustee doesn't bring a lawsuit to get some money for the estate that a big creditor thinks he ought to bring. Does bankruptcy normally work? This can't be unusual. It's not unusual. In such circumstances, there are two possibilities. One is that you bring a suit to sue the credit, the trustee, and make him do it. Another possibility is you bring your own lawsuit, but it's somehow you're standing in the shoes of the trustee. Both exist. Both exist. All you right. You can file a motion in the bankruptcy court to compel the trustee to act, or you can seek what is known in many of the cases as derivative standing. Fine. Now, if that's so in that circumstance, why shouldn't that be so in this circumstance? Because in this circumstance, Hartford didn't follow that procedure. Hartford didn't ask the trustee to act. Hartford didn't ask the bankruptcy court to force the trustee to act. And Hartford didn't go to the bankruptcy court, having made a record on that subject, and said, you know, somebody needs to sue union planners because we think there's a pretty good 506 claim. Now, in your view, as a, as a bankruptcy lawyer, sorry, if they had, I mean, suppose, is that a good way to resolve the problem? You say, look, you're a, you're a creditor. You're a post-petition creditor. You have a right to get your money, but you'll have to go first to the trustee because otherwise there are going to be those leeches, you know, where there are going to be all these people running around. Is that a good resolution? Well, Justice, it's not the leeches issue. It's the equality of distribution among creditors and equal rank issue. If the trustee who is clothed under 506C with the responsibility to pursue this right, this, this, this action to obtain funds that were otherwise the property of the secured creditor, either doesn't proceed in her own behalf or there isn't a court order that allows whatever surrogate, uh, Hartford or whomever, to proceed in the name of the estate and on behalf of the estate, then you're going to have a circumstance where that recovery is going to be, as Hartford seeks here, kept to itself and not shared with other creditors of equal rank. Where, where does the court have the authority to allow Hartford to proceed? Under what section of the code? There's none. My, I, I'm not aware of a statutory basis, Justice, for derivative standing. I thought that in your response to Justice Breyer, I said, now, you go to the, trust, the trustee in the court, and if the trustee doesn't want to do it, then you ask the court for authority to do it on your own. But now you're saying that the court doesn't have, can't allow you to do it. The, the, the bankruptcy courts have developed a body of law wherein they will, some, will grant what is called derivative standing. The cases are cited in briefs. Uh, as a matter of fact, the best example of them is in the amici for the, uh, uh, petitioner, when the uh, AIA and the uh, uh, National Union suggest that uh, even under the preference section and the fraudulent conveyance sections, which also start with the words the trustee may recover, uh, that there are cases which have allowed third parties. Are, are those to go proper forward. cases and proper holdings in your view? <laughs> Justice, I don't think, or I know, that this court doesn't need to decide whether derivative standing is appropriate on a nationwide basis uh, for us to win this case. Uh, because I don't think this Court should hold, and I hope it doesn't hold, that 506C, the word trustee, means anything other than trustee. I don't think you should hold that it means, because I don't think there is any established pre-code practice. Uh, and, and if there were, the statute is sufficiently clear. It shouldn't well, override the statute. Well, then I'm not sure why your answer to Justice Breyer isn't that the Hartford goes to the Court, it asks to order the trustee. If the Court and the trustee give no relief, there's nothing Hartford can do. Well, I don't know. Justice Breyer, I understood, asked me a factual question, Justice Kennedy. I don't mean to argue with you. In practice, and I'm in the trenches a heck of a lot more than I'm in the appellate courts, in practice, bankruptcy courts will occasionally, if a trustee refuses to act, clothe a creditor or another party with the right to act in the estate's name 
on behalf of the estate to pursue the claim if the court feels that is, it is is that, pers- is that pursuit in the bankruptcy court in or the bankruptcy plenary court. action in the bankruptcy in court. the bankruptcy now, there is if, another if we assume if we assume that is correct then if we assume that is a proper practice then if hartford had done two things differently Hartford would be entitled to recover, I take it, on, on, on the assumption that there may be a derivative action. And the two different things are, number one, Hartford would have to have gone to the trustee and the trustee would uh, have had to indicate refusal. Right. And number two, Hartford, in bringing its suit, would have to have captioned it, Hartford x or trustee x Hartford rather than Hartford. And if those two facts had been different, assuming derivative actions are, are appropriate, Hartford could recover here. Am I, am I right or am I missing something? I don't precisely disagree with it, the way it's phrased, Justice, Justice Souter. You're basically right. Hartford would have had to get a court order that said, that established the trustee was not proceeding. Okay. Now, and why Hartford does it have to get to the court order if there's, no, if there's no statutory section on it? I'm not here to argue whether derivative standing is the right approach. Every bankruptcy right. but if we assume derivative standing is, I'm, I'm, I'm making that assumption, what difference does it make whether Hartford gets the court order or doesn't get the court order? Because is it merely orderly procedure? No, because if Hartford recovers, it has to share with all other creditors of equal Well, rights. Hartford has indicated that, uh, that that's exactly what it will do, although that's, I guess, a, uh, an, an easy concession because it says there aren't any. Uh, if, you'd hear, if you could hear me for a minute on yep. that. I believe your question earlier uh, to Mr. Brunstad was pre-conversion or post-conversion. His answer was pre-petition or post-petition. Those are big differences. There aren't any administrative creditors pre-petition. Pre-conversion and post-conversion in an 11 that goes to a 7, there can be a bundle of administrative creditors on both sides. In fact, under 726B of the Bankruptcy Code, the post-conversion administrative creditors, in fact, do have a priority. So while well, he says there wouldn't be any others, that's not so. Okay, let's assume, he's, assume for the sake of argument, then, that, that, that I, I misspoke or, or he misspoke on that. He misspeak, he he's, he's, um, uh, I, I, I will make the further assumption that any recovery would be subject uh, to the claims of all others in the same class that, that Hartford is in. Correct. Uh, now, if, if that would be the legal effect of Hartford's recovery here, is the only thing then that prevents Hartford from doing that, the failure of Hartford to have gone to the trustee in the first place and said, let me bring a derivative action? If you are in a, a district where a judge will allow derivative standing in the name of the trustee, that's correct, because 506C talks about an action to recover by the trustee. There, the bankruptcy court in a number of districts will allow that. In a, in a number of, of districts, some bankruptcy courts are critical of that. But in any event, Hartford came here, and there has been, I think, a shift in the briefs, quite frankly, as I understand the argument, and maybe I just misperceive it. Hartford, uh, Hartford came here on the merits briefs to, to ask the court assembled to rule that under 506C's meaning, 506C could deem to say the trustee may recover, da-da-da-da, comma, and any unpaid administrative creditor may also recover under this section. And if that unpaid administrative creditor does recover under this section, it will have a super-priority claim over all other administrative creditors as described in Section 507A. Now, that's a big mouthful, but from a little section that says the trustee may recover, for Hartford to win on the merits briefs, all those things I just said, I respectfully submit, have to be engrafted onto a simple statute that gives the trustee in bankruptcy under limited circumstances as defined under the merits. Yes, the yes, right does, does the record tell us whether there are other administrative creditors now competing for this money? It does not, Justice Stevens. And I did, I, not, I, I did not have the case below. I the record to indicate that this was the only administrative creditor and that in no event would there be money available for any other, either general creditors or post-petition creditors. I, I can tell you this, Justice Stevens. I did not have the case below, yeah. so I'm not going to tell you something I don't know, obviously. We called up from the archives the final report. The final report doesn't say, um, so I can't tell you that. I can tell you that uh, Union Planners' predecessor had a $4 million loan. We lost a million and a half in principal, all of our interest and all of our attorney's fees and costs. If there was any other administrative creditor in the case, they didn't get paid. 
Now, whether, as a matter of fact, there was another group there is unknown. Intuitively, I would suggest to the Court that Hartford went to a lot of trouble uh, to make this end run if it was the only unpaid administrative creditor because it could have made a simple demand on the trustee and taken a shot for derivative standing. And and I would also like to suggest something well, else. Let me, let me just Go ahead, Justice Stevens. One sorry. other question. Am I correct in assuming that they did satisfy the requirements of 503A and B? They satisfied the requirements of 503A in that they um, — I'm trying to think which is which. They made, in the same motion that they sued under 506C, they made a request for payment of an administrative claim. And I believe they made a request. allowed it. Yeah, and I, made, I believe they made a request for allowance and payment. So I, I, it's, it's my belief that they did follow 503 at least. See, the thing that troubles me about your position, I, it's a very difficult case, but the thing that troubles me about your position is it seems to me it makes 503A and B meaningless. Well, let me try to respond to that. 503A says you can file a request for an administrative claim and you can file a request for a payment of it. Uh, and that's fine. I mean, any creditor ought to be able to file a proof of claim. Um, unsecured creditors can. Secured creditors can. I cer- certainly couldn't imagine why administrative creditors shouldn't be allowed to. Anybody can ask for payment from the estate, but 503 talks about a direction to the estate to seek payment. Creditors can't typically sue secured creditors as if they could sue outside under state law, to go back to a question you previously asked, Justice. Um, Within the bankruptcy, the bankruptcy codes, uh, I believe the court's language in some cases and looking at plain meaning has been consistent and coherent scheme, has been that creditors deal with the estate and the estate deals with creditors. Uh, Hartford wants to deal with us. They want to call us outside, and they don't have any way to do that except to make the argument that's made on the merits briefs and, 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 and partially made today, although there may have been a shift in argument, uh, that they can do it under 506C. Now, I would suggest to the Court that the Congress was not totally unmindful when it adopted the Code of the possibility that, inter- that there might be intercreditor fights on some circumstances under some, some uh, hypotheticals. In fact, Congress enacted Section 510, and in 510C, which is the equitable subordination section, the Congress said that it on application to a court after notice in the hearing, the court can subordinate all or part of one creditor's claim to all or part of another creditor's claim, or give the lien to the estate if it wanted, under general principles of equitable subordination. Now, the rule isn't the same as the substantive rule the trustee must meet to recover ordinary and necessary expenses of preserving the estate and benefit of the creditor under 506C, but 510C does provide a remedy. If Hartford wasn't willing to share. Is it ever used in these administrative expense areas, that section? It's used a lot in lender liability type claims and any kind of claim where you've got some sort of equitable misconduct, Justice O'Connor. I have not personally, and uh, that doesn't mean it's not used, and I have not researched the issue. Um, I do not know how often it is used. Yes, Justice O'Connor. Mr. Brownlee, what about the suggestions that the petitioner made of the cleanup costs or even the government as its ongoing operation and their tax liabilities. He said that your position means that a good Samaritan or the, a government agency who comes and cleans up the toxic junk gets nothing, and well, the government would get no tax. How do you deal with those cases? Well, in the first place, in terms of, and I, I gather your question is, a volunteer comes along post-petition and cleans up the property, which directly benefits the property. He, of the I'm, I'm addressing, I don't remember precisely how he put it in his brief. I'm sure you focused on it, so you remember better than I do. He, he talked about, about um, the cleanup costs that could be incurred by a private contractor or by a government agency to decontaminate the property. Well, if the case is in a Chapter 7, the, the case is for this, no, It has to be okay. when it was in 11, because that's what made it possible for the thing to go on. If the case is in a Chapter 11 and the debtor hires a private contractor to come in and clean up dirty property, and that contractor does it, and the court finds that the reasonable and necessary, all of that is met, which I, obviously sounds like on those facts, any most bankruptcy courts would find that, and there, the, 
the estate becomes insolvent and the contractor has not protected itself and gotten paid, then the contractor is his administrative claimant in the bankruptcy and he's treated of equal rank with all others. And if that's unfortunate and that means the statute's broke, then the Congress ought to fix the statute. So, and you would, that's a very candid answer. And you would, it wouldn't make any difference whether a government agency came in to do the cleanup, having been authorized by the debtor? I'm not aware, Justice Ginsburg, of any super priority for administrative creditors inter se uh, under the 507 priorities of the Bankruptcy Code, except for the one that Hartford asked you today to judicially engraft onto a statute which only provides uh, for the trustee to recover. I'm and not and is it the case that if the trustee, the trustee himself, goes and brings this lawsuit against Justice, uh, he, he, she can do it. I mean, the, the trustee can do this under 506C. Absolutely. And say collects $10 million, which happened to be the cost of the contracted for cleanup. Okay. All right. So now there's $10 million in the trustee's hand. Now there are another $20 million of administrative expenses that were not related to preserving the property. Now, does that $10 million, what, 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 does, does the trustee give that $10 million to the, the toxic waste contractor that helped to preserve the property, or does that toxic waste contractor get only one-third and two-thirds has to go to these other administrative claimants who had nothing to do with preserving the property? It's even worse, Justice Breyer. First, the trustee takes the trustee's fees and expenses and expenses. Well, that's right. I don't agree. Fine. And then it goes two-thirds, one-third, because I am not aware of Unless there — make sure I don't misspeak as an officer of the court. Mm -hmm. Unless there is some federal statute that grants a priority outside of bankruptcy to clean up contractors because of the importance of the environmental laws, wherein you'd have a clash. Between federal statutes and this is a this is a bigger. I'm not aware of a bankruptcy priority. So 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 the the C has as its purpose simply getting money from the secured creditor into the estate. It doesn't have as its purpose giving that money to the people who uh, incurred the expense. Oh no, Your Honor, distribution. Is, is governed by 726 wow. in a uh, in a liquidation. What was the prior practice? Was was the prior practice that uh, when the uh, our secured uh, toxic waste person, non-secured, sorry, the toxic waste person sues against the collateral and apparently can get the money, did that toxic waste person get to keep the whole thing, or did the toxic waste person have to put it in the estate and share it with the other uh, uh, non-related administrative? Uh, claimants. I am not. I'm not sure that I'm aware of a toxic waste case pre. No, no, it wouldn't have been toxic waste. Uh, what I mean is a, a a person. Certainly not in the 1800s. A, a 506C, a 506C creditor, and then there are non 506Cs, but 503A creditors. And and when the 506C creditor brought the suit, I know there wasn't a 506C. I didn't mean to be time, cute. I mean that kind of a person brings the suit, collects the 10 million. Did he get to keep the whole 10 million? Or did he have to throw it in the pool and he only got one-third and the, the, the non-506C uh, administrative creditors got two-thirds? My, my, be, my best answer, and, and I don't want you to think this is a dodge because I don't mean it to be, is it's my understanding of the pre-code practice was that it was all over the lot in terms of the equitable rules so and this what the judges decided to do. We cited at page 44 of the red brief an article by uh, Toth, uh, which recounts some of the history to the uh, the article itself is in West New England Law Review. Mm-hmm. It recounts a lot of the history to the predecessor to 506C, and in that article it concludes that, uh, as Colliers did in 1978, which we also cite on that page, that there was no firmly established rule. Why, why would you want uh, to allow such a person, i.e., a 506C person, to get from the secured creditor money that he isn't going to keep? And he, in fact, is going to give to two other people because of the secured creditor shouldn't get it. Because, Justice, because of the equality of distribution rules of the bankruptcy code, there are administrative claim creditors and there is not a super priority that says you are a 506C creditor. Because creditors don't have the right to pursue the action under 506C. Congress never intended 506C to be allow you to bring that case. It was for the trustee only, so a fortiorari, it was to be distributed to all the creditors of equal rank. And that's what Congress decided. Mr. Brownlee, my question is related. And it seemed to me in reading the text of 506C and 503 
that not every administrative expense under 503A would fit under 506. I agree with that. 506 is limited to the reasonable necessary costs and expenses of preserving or disposing of the secured property. I agree and with presumably you. some wages and salaries don't fit under that. But Maybe some insurance premiums don't fit under that. It would depend on what it was. Am I right? Yes, you're absolutely right. Mr. I mean, Brown, I could see that 506C would be related to things like painting the building or paying the real estate commission to sell it. Is that right? Your Honor, uh, I, I, I know you're way past this, but I wished at one point you'd been a bankruptcy judge in our district. I couldn't agree with you more. Oh, well, let me but, but some courts will find an implied benefit or find some reason but, but wait a to minute. try to but, toss these things into 506C on the merits. That's not the case here. But, We're but talking let's about clarify one thing that's, here. That's I thought you had agreed that if this action had been brought by the trustee because the trustee had expended this very money, 506C would apply. If this action had been brought by the trustee. So the fact that it's insurance premiums doesn't distinguish it from paint on the buildings. We, we fought it below. And you I, lost. And we lost. Yeah. Uh, I don't think we lose in every in every court. No, but for the purposes of our decision, we assume that this is just like paint on the buildings or or something like that. Mr. Brownlee, do you have this answer to Justice Breyer's one-third, two-third hypothetical? I mean, it's a problem for your case, and I thought the answer might be this, but tell me if I'm wrong. Um, Assuming derivative standing, the premise of my other question, assume it again. If the one administrative creditor has administrative standing, what he will do, I presume, is to bring an action on behalf of all administrative creditors. So he will not merely collect his insurance premium. He will collect the charges of all other administrative creditors, and therefore he will get, theoretically, a hundred percent of what is owed, and so he will get his one-third, and they will get their two-thirds, and everybody will be whole. Is that the answer to the problem? Uh, well, if every administrative creditor qualified uh, to be a surcharging creditor under the standards of 506C, right, right, yeah. but you're assuming every administrative creditor in the state does so qualify, and I suggest to you that that hypothetically is an interesting question. Okay, but dumb assumption, but with, to the extent that that assumption would be true, is, is that the way we avoid the one-third, two-third problem? To the extent that that assumption is true, if every administrative claim in a case qualifies for a surcharge, to make sure I understand yeah. your hypothetical, yeah. and the trustee refuses to act, which is one of the inconceivability of that because it would be such a large claim that very few trustees would not be highly incentivized. But Let's, if, we'll assume the trustees broke and so on, but... Assume it, anyway. If there's a large case, the trust will be fixing to get unbroke very quickly when, when she won, but I, I don't mean to argue. No. Um, uh, under that assumption, the trustee refuses to act. The bankruptcy court refuses to direct the trustee to act. The bankruptcy court refuses to appoint a new trustee who will act. And the bankruptcy decides, in the exercise of its discretion, without any direct statutory authority to grant derivative standing, and the Hartford brings the claim in the name of the estate on behalf of all the administrative claims in the estate, and wins on the merits of the individual little lawsuits it will have to prove reasonable, necessary, direct benefit, secure credit. If that's the hypothetical, then yes, they'll recover and you avoid the one-third, two-third problem. Suppose a pipe in the building is leaking. They need a plumbing contractor immediately or the building is going to be wrecked. You represent the plumbing contractor. Uh, And he comes to you and says, I want to be sure I get paid. How, how, what are the different ways you do it? In practice? And, yes. I call the bank. I bypass the bankruptcy court entirely. I call the bank and, to say, and, you're, and I call and the bank say you're building, your roof's going to fall in, and it's your collateral. You want to give me the money, I'll fix it. If and, you don't, I'll stand by and take a picture of it while it falls in. And, and anything, else you're at, you're, anything else you're at risk of having to share with the other, with the other administrative creditors? Absolutely, Justice. Do you, uh, on, on what basis does the trustee have the right to sue for money that the trustee hasn't expended? Uh, There is a line of authority, Justice Scalia, and it may be the better one. It can be traced to the statement in, I believe, the floor reports uh, in the legislative history that's in the the briefs, uh, where there's a reference to the monies that the trustee has expended or some phrase to that effect. It escapes me, the the precise phrasing. Mm -hmm. 
It's uh, that really 506C isn't intended to collect unpaid administrative claims. It's intended only for the trustee to bring an action to recover those administrative claims that the trustee has paid out that justify to, to tag the bank to bring it back in and, and split up the deficiency. That, that opinion was adopted in the plurality opinion in K&L Lakeland in the Fourth Circuit. Mm-hmm. But as I read that opinion, there wasn't enough votes in the Fourth, even though the Fourth is a JKJ uh, uh, circuit, which is the other circuit on our side other than this case, which I hope is affirmed at the end of this argument, um, to, to make that part of circuit law. Uh, This Court doesn't have to decide that today, but I would agree with the Justice that that is a strong read of the real congressional meaning of the words. But the plain meaning of these words fit if you want to include an attack on unpaid administrative claims. It just makes it real complicated, and it makes for the kinds of questions that we've discussed today. There are no further questions, Mr. Chief Justice. Thank you, Mr. Brownlee. The case is submitted. The Honorable Court is now adjourned until tomorrow at 10 o'clock.